BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are smack dab in the middle of Pride Month, and though the joy resounds, it's also worth acknowledging what a politically brutal year it has been, especially for trans people as laws in many conservative states target their rights. It seems to many that hard-won progress is being lost. So today, with joy but also with due respect, we have two historians of the community in the studio this morning. Ms. Bob Davis is the founder of the Luis Lawrence Transgender Archive up in Vallejo. And we also have the legendary historian Susan Stryker. We're going to talk about some fascinating objects from the archive and what we can learn from the struggles and triumphs of movement leaders over the last 50 years. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. One of the largest collections of transgender history sits in a small garage turned archive in Vallejo. The Luis Lawrence Transgender Archive has been open to the public since 2018. Those closed for a little while after an SUV accidentally crashed into it. It's back now, though, and with Pride Month underway, we're going to explore a few key objects from the collection and talk about the evolution of the transgender movement and what's in that history for this current moment. We're joined by Ms. Bob Davis, the founder and director of the Louise Lawrence Transgender Archive. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. And we're also joined by Susan Stryker. She's an incoming faculty member in gender and sexuality studies at the University of Southern California. You may know her from her books, including Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. And she won an Emmy for the documentary film Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. Thanks for joining us, Susan. Hey, Alexis. Great to be here. Um, Susan, so I want to start here. I mean, we know that we're talking about just kind of one slice of trans history today, mainly this kind of Western American Bay Area part of that history. And I'd love to just acknowledge the broader histories that proceed and run alongside the history we're focusing on. Could you kind of lay out that broader map for us? Sure. And I'll, I'll try to give a quick little soundbite and not run my mouth like a, a professor. But uh, I appreciate you gesturing towards that longer, larger history because I, I really think the the reason that trans issues are so contentious today is that they kind of run counter to the logic or the ideology or you know operating system of the modern West. And as a historian, when I say modern, I mean like you know since 1492 <laughs> modern uh, because what what came out of that um, 
that European-centered world system that that developed through colonization, like the 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 key to the profitability of that system for European people was hereditary racial slavery, and that the way that the economics of slavery was propped up was to develop an ideology, like a set of beliefs about the meaning of our body, you know, mm-hmm. and that this this system developed where uh, the the particular qualities of your body, like skin color, um, lineage, uh, yeah, morphology, phenotype, mm-hmm. were used socially as a way of binding people, you know, in this way that was imagined to be permanent into a ranked social categories. Mm-hmm. Like if your body looks like that, it means that you are permanently assigned to this mm-hmm. <clears throat> racial or social economic category. And so the, the belief in the fixity of the body as a way mm-hmm. of securing the social order, that comes out of slavery. Mm-hmm. And so transness today, it, it's one of the ways of showing that's like, that's not the only possible way of thinking about people and bodies and society. Like there can be other ways of organizing society that are perhaps more just. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's precisely because trans people represent the possibility of a profoundly different way of organizing life. That's exactly why we're targeted by mm-hmm. the right wing and by the forces of conservatism and reaction. And it's because trans people live a life that is marginalized and oppressed because of these really deep, historically persistent ways of thinking that the kinds of life-affirming, community-building, joyous activities that trans people can engage in as a way of, you know, surviving and Mm -hmm. celebrating the way that we are. That's precisely why the kind of work that Ms. Bob does with the Louise Mm -hmm. Lawrence archive is so important. It's like the the community life that's documented there is truly inspiring. Susan Stryker. My God, right out of the gate. Um, Ms. Bob Davis, let's talk about the archive. How how did this archive come to be? Uh, Well, I'm a collector. I can't stop collecting things. And as a kid, I collected turtles and seashells and newspaper clippings about comedians. And then when I had an apartment alone for the first time in 1979, I bought my first transgender magazine at a porn shop, of course, because that's where they all were in those days. And I just was hooked. I kept going. And, uh, Forty years later, I opened the archive. I, I, all the, we had a termite-infested garage when we bought our house in Vallejo. I was looking at it and said, okay, what can I do with this? And I saw all the boxes of books and magazines and photographs and ephemera that I had collected and said, of course. <laughs> Clearly, this termite-infested garage should be an archive. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm a collector, yeah. but I'm not a miser. And I wanted to make sure that this stuff wasn't just wasted on me, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Tell us about Louise Lawrence. Oh, Louise. The reason I picked Louise is she, she's one of the unsung heroes of the transgender community. She started, she, and she's a local gal. She started <laughs> living as a woman in 1944 in Berkeley and then continued uh, in San Francisco until her death in the mid-1970s. And she... Um, 
pardon me, she uh, she didn't have a, any medical intervention. She was living in what was the original sense of the word transgender, which is someone who changed their gender, but not their sex. And uh, and that's why I picked her. Cause she, and she also, she did such wonderful work. Mm-hmm. Before we go into the specific objects that we're going to do, Susan, I wanted you, you know, one of the things your book traces is kind of the evolution of the ways that people have used to describe these interior experiences. I mean, how have you come to see the interplay between you know, kind of the acts of labeling that people do themselves or that, that are, are visited upon them and what possibilities exist for people to, to live their lives? Yeah, well, you know, I'm just going to be really simple uh, about that because, you know, terminology changes you know per- perpetually it's like and i think social media only accelerates that i mean the the book you're mentioning transgender history uh, there's been two editions of that. One came out in 2008. One came out in 2016. And I think, and there's a, another one on its way for probably 2025. <laughs> Things have happened yeah, in the right. last few years. Um, but the the biggest difference I noticed between the 2008 and when I was asked to revise it in 2016 was just like things that seemed so you know au courant you know and in 2008, it just sounded like your your grandmama's trans by 2016, <laughs> and it was just like it's just like the language shifts so fast, terms shift so fast. But so for me, what I always try to go back to is just a, a very broad, basic definition of trans as a movement across socially imposed boundaries. Um, you know, it's about it's about trans is like the movement from an unchosen starting place. You know, we're all assigned at birth to something. It's like we come into the world, never asked, you know, we're thrown into a particular situation. And as you move over the course of your life, according to your needs and desires and particular way of being, if you have to cross some socially imposed boundary that says, no, you've got this body, you're this, is like, you have to be this, you have to do that. Moving across that is trans. And honestly, I think when I think about trans that way, it's like it, what it's what brings trans politics together with feminist politics. It's like saying, mm-hmm. just because you're born with a uterus, it doesn't mean you're supposed to be a baby making machine. It's like, figure it out for yourself. Or back to the race question, yeah. it's like, just because you're born with a particular you know, phenotype, you know, um, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to be less than or property. It's mm-hmm. just like you you move across the socially imposed mm-hmm. boundary mm-hmm. that sometimes society wants to use to hold you in place. We're talking about trans history with Susan Stryker, an incoming faculty member at the University of Southern California, and Ms. Bob Davis, collector and founder of the Luis Lawrence Transgender Archive in Vallejo. We do want to hear from you. What do you think is an object that represents this moment in trans history? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Um, Ms. Bob, let's talk about the first uh, object that you've brought to share with us. Um, yes. Tell us what it is. I, have, I, I, I can't see the same screen you can. Is Jose Saria? Yes. Ah, well, this is Jose Saria was a gay man who performed in drag 
and uh, at a thank you at a uh, Barbary Coast uh, club on uh, mm-hmm. on Montgomery Street, and Jose was inspired. He really wanted to see, he was a very early liberationist, he really wanted to see LGBT people remove, remove the stigma. Mm-hmm. So much so that he mainstreamed and went, uh, in 1961, he ran for uh, the Board of Supervisors, mm-hmm. first openly gay candidate in the country. And to everyone's amazement, he got 6,000 votes. Now, he didn't come in first. It was a very large field. I think he came in around 8th or ninth. But this alerted the San Francisco politicos that, hey, there is a gay voting constituency out there. And one of the people who really took notice was Dianne Feinstein <laughs> and, uh, was, and was friendly to the LGBT community <laughs> throughout her period as a supervisor and then later mayor. <laughs> Jose was also an excellent performer with a wonderful voice and a very, very pro-LGBT attitude. <laughs> we actually have um, a clip as well, and maybe we'll go into the break listening to Jose Saria. We're talking trans history with Susan Stryker and Ms. Bob Davis. We've got uh, a, a cut here. Let's listen. I have a We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about trans history with Susan Stryker, incoming faculty member at the University of Southern California. She's the author of many important books about transgender history. Uh, we're also joined by Ms. Bob Davis, collector and founder of the Luis Lawrence Transgender Archive in Vallejo. Love to hear from you. Had a little trouble with the phone, so if you tried to call, try and call again. What's an object? 
that represents this moment in trans history to you. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. You can find us on social things as KQED Forum. Um, before the break, we were talking about Jose Saria um, as a political figure, as a performer. Um, Susan, how would you see someone like Jose in this sort of sweep of trans history? Um, well, first of all, I mean, just to second what Ms. Bob was saying, it's like H- Jose was this fabulous, larger than life, totally influential figure, not just in the Bay Area, but nationally and internationally, one of the founders of the imperial court system, which is this drag, you know, charity, kind of like the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence now. It's like it's a fa- fascinating subculture. Uh, but Ho- Jose was... was um, like knew how to have a good time. It's like very much used cultural production and performance to build community, and underneath that is very political. The um, the uh, the run for city supervisor that Ms. Bob was mentioning just a moment ago. It came out of the fact that the club where where Jose. T- typically performed the Black Cat, which was a bohemian bar in mm-hmm. North Beach on the old Barbary Coast. Uh, it was drawing the attention of the police because you know queer, queer folk would would hang out there. Um, you know, it lost its liquor license, et cetera, et cetera. And Jose was like, you know, like, no, we have to like go to the barricades. You know, like let's let's make political change. And so they went from like club performance to you know trying to take that to the halls of you know power in, in city hall. So they were really inspiring to me. And but that they never lost that sense of like, well, we're going to like live, we're going to have fun, we're going to be ourselves, (laughs) we're going to take up public space. Mm -hmm. And that to me really is the heart of queer politics of just saying like, we're here. I mean, like back in the days of my generation, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. We (laughs) take up. We take up our space. We don't take up your space. And we're just, you know, we just want to live, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, we have, we do have, uh, you mentioned Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, our little... How could we not? Yes. Um, let's talk about the first thing that we have. This is um, a brochure uh, called Playfair. Oh, and it's a wonderful brochure. And it's really early. It's It's... It's the first safe sex brochure in, put together by the sisters. I think one of them's name was Sister Florence Nightmare. And uh, medical professionals to combat what was then called the gay cancer. Mm-hmm. It was before HIV AIDS had a name. Mm-hmm. And the sisters were already aware, more so than many, like the, like the president at that time, uh, of what was happening and what a threat this represented to the community. And like Susan said, the sisters did it with joy. Mm-hmm. I wish you could see the illustration. <laughs> How would you describe that? Um, it's a chain of sisters. It's, it's a uh, NC-17, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I'm old enough not to know what that means. So, uh, but they did that and they did other political actions too. Uh, when they at the Republican nominating convention in 1984, which nominated, uh, uh not Nixon, the other guy. Uh, <laughs> Reagan. Thank you. Uh, for a second term, 
they protested. And there's a, there's a photo, a wonderful photo of one of the founders of the sisters, Sister Power, Vicious Power Hungry Bitch, who's now just Sister Vish, with a cross and the word justice across it. Mm. And this was a time when the president hadn't even said the word AIDS. It was completely ignored, mm-hmm. at least by the White House, until Rock Hudson died. Because Rock mm-hmm. Hudson and Ronald Reagan were pals back in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And after that, Reagan finally said mm-hmm. the word. Yeah. You know, we're talking about Sisters for Perpetual Indulgence. It's amazing, Susan, the continuity between that moment and today. I mean, we just in the last few weeks saw the Dodgers, you know, invite, disinvite, and then re-invite the sisters to their uh, pride celebration. Um, Talk to me about why it is that that particular kind of playful mode of both community support and activism kind of remains something that, you know, a mainstream organization like the Dodgers might struggle to read or understand. Hmm. Uh, I might punt on that just a little bit and say it's like, you know, yeah, you're right. This is There's nothing new about this. The first wave of anti-cross-dressing legislation in the U.S. is from the 1840s. Like between the 1840s and 1860s, there were a wave of cities in the U.S. that passed, you know, what, what they – called anti-impersonation laws. Um, The usual wording in the legislation was that it was illegal to appear in dress or to appear in public in a dress not belonging to his or her sex, uh, whatever that would mean. And and it was in the same part of the municipal ordinances as like, you know, anti-prostitution statutes or anti-public drunkenness or nudity. It's like it was just considered a form of lewd and lascivious behavior. Um, Susan's uh, air quoting here. You can't see it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Quote, unquote, (laughs) lewd and lascivious behavior. Uh, And so, but you're you're right to to point out that this is a persistent problem. of the the way that people who don't abide by norms, social norms about gender presentation can be targeted. And, you know, from my perspective, it's like, well, like, who cares what you wear? You know, like, what's like, that's freedom of expression, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, with the, the Dodgers, it's like, they, they have just been so hapless. And not just the Dodgers, but like, I think a lot of corporate um, you know, yes. entities today, you know, Target, Starbucks, uh, you know, I forget that beer because I don't drink it. But, you know, just like the, the way <laughs> one of the lights, lights yeah. one of the lights. Yeah. You know. um, uh, you know, they, they they I think ultimately they just don't have any real politics. They're like catering to like tr- just trying to mm-hmm. tr- trying to sell their product. And it's like, oh, we can sell it with a rainbow flag on it. Oop, no, we can't. You know, we'll <laughs> we'll pull it back. And yeah, it's just very um, it's just very frustrating yeah. to see trans issues becoming a political f- football for things that have absolutely nothing to do with living a trans life. Yeah. Let's bring in um, our first call. Let's bring in Sarah in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I am calling. I wanted to say I I wanted to say thank you to Susan Stryker because um, I feel like um, you sort of opened my eyes and really initially introduced me to the idea 
and just to have an understanding about transgender identity. Um, I saw you speak, heard you speak in a class I had with Elizabeth Reese at the University of Oregon almost 30 years ago. Um, And yeah, and um, I know you have known her for a long time, but, um, you know, you came in and just and just spoke really frankly. And for me, it was the first time that I, as a cisgender heterosexual woman, you know, was able to kind of think about transgender identity and how it related to feminism um, without kind of the stigma that we, that I was taught and that most of us were taught um, growing up. So I just wanted to sort of shout you out and say thank you so much for that because it's been really important to me. I think about you a lot, actually, um, when I'm thinking about kind of transgender issues and things are so different now um for in my life i think like and most of ours in terms of you know transgender identity being talked Mm -hmm. about and and represented and you know knowing folks who can be openly transgender and and stuff so um thank you so much well thank you for for that sarah sarah Sarah, that was lovely i can tell you now that susan is blushing (laughs) (laughs) you know but a quick shout out to the the professor you mentioned lizzie reese it's like uh, lizzie and i were grad students together we're in the same phd program at berkeley and we've just been friends for about 40 years at this point, and Lizzie is just the the epitome of a good ally. And when I was coming out, because I you know I wasn't out when I started grad school, and you know it, my transition was a big deal for my social network. And Lizzie just set me down and was just like, "Okay, I don't know anything about this. Explain it to me." And we sat and talked for hours, and she was like, "Okay, I totally get it." And she moved in response to that. She moved some of her work into doing like long-term histories of gender variants. It's like it intersected with some of her research interests already, and but it was like a light bulb going off for her. And it's like, and she has just been the epitome of a good feminist, cis, cis white feminist ally. Yeah. Um, we have a listener with, uh, with an object. Listener tweets, my object might be a plane ticket to San Francisco. I'm curious how to hear you talk about transmigration in the past versus today. And Ms. Baba, I was wondering if maybe we could do it by talking about the newsletters in your archive. So people, we're not talking about Substack here. We're talking about 70s, 60s even, 80s, we're, these paper newsletters, right? Especially, yes, although 80s, 70s through the through 2000. At, that, at a certain point, there were a whole lot there was a part of the transgender community when the community started forming that became very diffused. Uh, I have, in the archive, Louise has newsletters from uh, Upper New York State, a group called, uh, from Albany, uh, TVIC, Transgender Independent Club. There were newsletters from Chicago, Boston, uh, certainly the Bay Area, because we had two very prominent support groups here, uh, ETVC, Educational Transvestite Channel. I think they intended to do a cable show at one point, but I don't think that ever materialized. And uh, that was for uh, mostly uh, male to female identifying people. And then there was FTM, later FTM International, the uh, first club for transgender men in the country, started by Lou Sullivan, 
who Susan, did you ever meet Lou? I just missed him. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I remember, um, I mean, I knew well, about Well, tell us who he is first, yeah. Well, Bob, why don't, yeah. why don't you? Uh, Lou was, Lou was born in the Midwest, uh, and she, very early in life she decided that she really was not a girl, but used to, as she called it, playboy. And uh, that's two words, not not like the magazine. Yeah. Uh, or playing boys might be a better way to say it. And eventually Lou transitioned. Lou lived in the Tenderloin for many years, was one of the founders of the LGBT Historical Society here in mm-hmm. town. Uh, and for all the wonderful work that Lou did, Lou unfortunately had a sad end. Mm. Lou identified as a gay man. And at that time transgressing that many borders, transing in that many directions was completely unheard of, and the medical community couldn't cope. So Lou had a very difficult time getting the care that he needed once he started getting sick. Mm. Lou said in his diaries, they've told me I'm not going to be able to live like a man, like a gay man, but it looks like I'm going to die like one, because Lou died of HIV AIDS. In uh, 91. 91. Yeah, that was the year. Every uh, uh, There were so many deaths in 91. Uh, Lou, uh, Doris Fish, Ambie Sexterus, who were very prominent San Francisco drag queens, Tippy, many, many. Yeah. yeah. Lou Sullivan's diaries seem like a very special collection of documents. They were very special. And um, I had the... Um, There's uh, a book, We Both Laughed in Pleasure. We Both Laughed in Pleasure, Bob the Selected Davis Diaries of Lou Sullivan, edited yeah. by Ellis Martin and Zach Ozma, uh, with an introdu- introduction by, by me. Um, <laughs> and the reason I wrote that introduction is that when I was first starting out as a, as a trans historian, very community-based, as I finished up at Berkeley, could not get a job to save my soul um, as an academic historian because of the trans thing. Uh, I did most of my work at the GLBT Historical Society, which is this amazing community-based archive and the fiscal sponsor of the Louise Lawrence Archive. We thank you. And, um, and it, you know, through, through working with them, it's like Lou was one of the founders of that organization. And right when I was getting involved, it's like I knew about some of Lou's early publications, like there was a thing called Information for the Female-to-Male Cross-Dresser and Transvestite. I knew about that. Mm-hmm. and But right as I was really coming into the community in the <clears throat> 1991, um, Lou was dying. And I met people who knew Lou and said Lou is not meeting new people right now because he's on his way out and keeping it you know, a more closely held mm-hmm. community. So I just missed him. But when I got started at the Historical Society, um, Lou's diaries, I mean, all of Lou's papers had just been donated to the archive. And I actually learned how to be an archivist by uh. working on Lou's collection and writing the collection guide and preparing it for public use. And those journals, it's like he, he started writing in 1961 when he was a you know, 10-year-old Catholic schoolgirl growing up in Milwaukee. And he wrote until 1991 when he was a gay man dying of AIDS in San Francisco. Wow. And that 30 years of life writing, it's just so profound to me. 
And there was one passage in particular when Lou was about 14 maybe, and he wrote in his journals, I don't know what somebody like me looks like, but when people look at me, I want them to think there's one of those people who has their own interpretation of happiness. That's what I am. And I just thought that this, you know, 14 year old kid saying like, I want people to see me as my own interpretation of happiness. I, it's like, that gave me strength. It's like, I carried that forward into my coming out and being trans in public. So Lou, even though we didn't overlap in time and space on this plane, it's just like, I kind of feel like Lou was my transition buddy. And um, I really took a lot of uh, sustenance from what, uh, what he, what he, the legacy that he left. Yeah. I mean, just the incredible, like, creativity of that act that that implies. Yeah. Right. Um, we are talking about trans history with Susan Stryker, author of the book, Transgender History, uh, also incoming faculty member at the University of Southern California. We're also joined by Ms. Bob Davis, collector and founder of the Louise Lawrence Transgender Archive in Vallejo. We would love to hear from you. Is this your history that we're talking about? If so, what moments stand out to you? What does this history really really look like through your own eyes? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. One thing, Ms. Bob, um, when is the archive open? By appointment. By appointment. Okay. So how would they make an appointment? Well, there you can go up to our website, lltransarchive.org, mm-hmm. and uh, contact us and just simply send an email. Yeah. Suggest a day and an, and an, and an afternoon. Mornings are tough, not an early rise. <laughs> Mornings are really tough. Thank you for joining us this early morning. We appreciate it. <laughs> um, we'll be back with more on Trans History with Susan Stryker and Ms. Bob Davis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about trans history with the legendary historian Susan Stryker, incoming faculty member at the University of Southern California, and Ms. Bob Davis, founder of the Louise Lawrence 
Transgender Archive in Vallejo. Also taking uh, some more of your calls and comments in this part of the show. What's an object that represents this moment in trans history to you? The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You know, Susan, we're celebrating this history of you know survival and creativity and need this movement history. It's been really a hell of a few years for trans people. This legislation keeps passing in conservative states, targeting trans people and kids, parents of trans kids. From your study of this history, I mean, do you see parallels to previous reactionary periods? I do. Um, you know, just as I mentioned earlier, it's like you can look back at, at explicit anti-trans legislation back into the early 1960s. But a more recent example would be after the social movements of the 1960s, the emergence of, you know, gay liberation and feminist movements and, you know, uh, racial justice movements. Uh, there was a huge backlash in the 1970s, you know, like from, the, from the late 60s into the early 70s when some of those movements are starting to dissipate. Victories have been won, however. There was a right-wing backlash to that spearheaded by Anita Bryant, a, a, a former beauty queen and evangelical Christian who started this campaign called Save Our Children uh, in Florida. And there were there was there was a wave of anti at that time was gay and lesbian organ um, uh, legislation. Um, uh, and so what's happening now is in some ways the pendulum swinging back in another direction. Mm. What's different about it is that I think it's trans people in particular who are being targeted right now, uh, mm -hmm. that the right wing has found that to be a very um, useful way of trying to split political coalitions and alliances on the cultural left. And it's what makes our, you know, studying our history and I think studying the, the ways that um, trans and gender diverse people have survived and thrived and like put mm -hmm. positive energy out into the world, even in the face of mm -hmm. oppression and violence and death and all that, so important. And I believe there is an exhibit at the historical GLBT Historical Society mm. right now that celebrates some of that like in your face, anarchic, celebratory like drag spirits, like Ms. Bob, did you have Are you working something on that? Yeah. to do with that? Uh, I, I think you're talking about the ego as art form, the art of Doris yeah. Fish. Yeah. Doris. Yes. Um, Doris was certainly in your face. I mean, we're talking about the 1980s it was her high, high point. And that was a time when the gay community did not want drag. It was, uh, there was a, if you, if you, the Castro clone, was a basic look. It was a very masculine kind of look of jeans and boots and uh, baseball caps. And that was kind of the uniform for gay men and mustaches. Must have mustaches. And uh, I still love a mustache. I mean, yeah. I do, but shh. <laughs> don't tell. Uh, but it's... Uh, so the exhibit is Doris's art uh, and her paintings, but also artifacts from her life. The Philip R. Ford, the uh, director of her of, of Doris's film Vegas in Space, that cult classic, uh, which I think you can probably still find on the internet, uh, he donated some things like the issue of the Examiner from the days when the Examiner was a real daily newspaper, where they had a three or four column 
obituary on page one for Doris. And uh, Doris's drag was big. More was always better for Doris. It was outsized, larger than life. It's I personally see it as the antecedent to the RuPaul drag queen, which is also big and larger than life. And Doris's look, she called the Hollywood version. Hmm. Everything was just fine. She looked great. And she always looked great. And uh, it was... uh, So the exhibit has been... uh, will be up all summer at the... um, uh, GLBT History Museum on 18th Street near Castro. Mm -hmm. We were just uh, listed among the 10 LGBTQ plus exhibits to see this summer by Christie's, uh, the (laughs) auction house online, which is uh, very heady because I didn't even know that they knew about it. Um, You know, one one thing I wanted to get to today, Susan, I think what Miss Bob is saying kind of kind of weaves into this. It's just the the way that the different kind of strands of like queer and gender expansive people kind of can be followed separately and for various reasons and purposes, you know, in your work, you you see that. But you also describe some of these uh, at least occasional weavings between different movements and identities. And you know, returning to the sort of political questions right now, I mean, where do you see us? Are we in a a time when these identities are kind of coming together? Or do you think we're in a time where trans people specifically are being separated out? Um, Great question. You know, I I think um, when you look back historically over the the long haul, um, that, you know, what we now call transgender intersex, meaning like transgender meaning like living and desiring and thinking of yourself in a way that runs counter to what your culture usually thinks your body is supposed to mean. Intersex being like uh, physical or biological um, atypicalities of some kind. Like, you know, it's like just the way human bodies form, just like there is a little bit of biological variation and genital structure and endocrinology that's just a naturally occurring variation that often gets called intersex now and homosexuality which is about same-sex desire desiring like within the same social category and identity that you have and those three things while they're can be intellectually, conceptually distinct. It's like in practice, the boundaries between them become very fuzzy, both in terms of how people live those categories as well as how people outside them imagine them. So, you know, I think of it as like a great big, you know, hairball tangle of of, (laughs) um, things that are kind of sort of alike and kind of sort of different from each other. Um, um, but on the question of trans people being sorted out right now, I do think that's the case. It's like there is this way that trans people are being imagined as the category that contains everything that is wrong and dangerous um, about living differently than you know the dominant culture or you know conservative versions of the dominant culture want want to believe mm-hmm. in. So I do think we're being very specifically targeted right now. So I think it's, you know, politically useful, um, honestly, to try to explode trans, to say, like, it's not one thing. You know, it's like it is a multitude. It is a constellation. It is a myriad of potential ways for differing from societal gender norms. 
Well, it seems like one of the ways in which you show the interconnections between all these different identities is to just go look at the places where people were hanging out. So in your work on, you know, Compton's cafeteria, for example, or pe- when people think about Stonewall, there are these mix of different identities who are all in these same, same places and are in the literal same fight. Right. You know, uh, th- uh, thanks for bringing up Compton's. I'll plug my film, Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. There's a website you can go to, screamingqueensmovie.com. Uh, Don't miss it. <laughs> What's that? Don't miss it. <laughs> Don't miss it. Right. Um, God, it's almost 20 years old now, but people are s- still watching it, still gets programmed. Uh, and it's about a Stonewall-like riot in San Francisco in 1966, three years before Stonewall in New York. And uh, I, w- working on that, I would say working on Lou's Diaries and working on Screaming Queens are like two of my favorite most significant to me things mm-hmm. I've ever done as a trans historian because I just I I think it's so important to keep alive the knowledge of trans people as a community of people who have resisted the kinds of social oppressions that we've faced uh, the Compton's cafeteria was in the Tenderloin the corner of Turk and Taylor streets and that the Tenderloin itself was a neighborhood that is designed, you know, it, its purpose. It's like it was where the city literally policed and segregated and ghettoized all kinds of marginalized communities. <clears throat> a lot of them, I mean, like with trans women in particular, the reason there's a transgender district in San Francisco now that occupies the historic red light district of the Tenderloin is that trans women in particular were denied housing in other parts of the city, wouldn't rent to the Queens, uh, excluded from employment. And so you had people winding up doing survival sex work on the streets, living in the Tenderloin. And that that kind of containment of trans life into a, a trans ghetto, it's like that was the motivation behind the Compton's Cafeteria riot. It was just a cafeteria in the Tenderloin. It was a clean, well-lighted place for cheap food in the middle of the night. Everybody in the neighborhood just used it as their chill-out lounge. And it was constantly raided by the police. And one night in August 66, for reasons you'll have to, you know, learn about by watching the film, um, <laughs> they fought back. They fought mm-hmm. back one night, and it was this to me just such this powerful moment of different marginalized communities coming together to fight back against the things that were diminishing the quality of their life and their possibilities for mm-hmm. survival. And and so, yeah, I think we're at that moment again. You you said, um, you know, we're. we're was it the Benjamin Franklin quote back then? He said, if we don't all hang together, we're all going to hang separately. <laughs> you know, so there's that. You mentioned the all in the same boat. I kind of like to think of that cliche as it's like, well, maybe we're not actually all in the same boat. We're in different boats, but we are, in fact, all in the same storm. Mm. And, like, we need to figure out how we are going to get through this narrow place in time that we are trying to navigate mm. right now because it is it is a dangerous world for us right now. Thank you for that. Let's, um, let's bring in Pam in San Anselmo. Welcome, Pam. Hi. Thanks so much for having this program on. It's bringing back so many great memories for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, so 
I grew up in Michigan and had to move to California in 79 to come out. And my family obviously had a problem. And anyway, my mom was trying to be okay with it and came to visit me. And, you know, it was a different world back then. And I took her to Amelia's. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that proved a little bit. The women were a little aggressive with her. She was very beautiful. (laughs) So I had to get her out of there. And I, I lived right there in, you know, on market and like 16th or something. And there was a restaurant right there that was like, maybe shaped like a cable car or something. I can't remember the name of it, but all the staff, you know, were dressed as women. And I had kind of forgotten about that because it was just a great place to eat. And I took my mom in there and as soon as I saw, I was like, Oh God. And, but she was, she just was, she loved, she was so nice to our wait, the waiter and you know, all this business. Anyway, she didn't realize that they were men. Hmm. And when I told her, she was like, oh, my God, they're so beautiful. They look just like all my friends back home. <laughs> and <laughs> and really, they helped bridge the gap for her to accept me as a queer woman. Even, you know, it was just anyway, it was 1982 and AIDS was around, but we really didn't know about it. It wasn't really, you know, it was we were it was still in that pre-AIDS world where, God, it was, I longed for that world. It was so, anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Drag queens doing their work, right? Right. Just like making the world a better place for other people. Quick little shout out. And promoting acceptance. Right. Um, On Amelia's, that was a great bar. Um, Now the elbow room, right? And and now it's something else. I think even past the elbow room. But but if you if if you can find it, there's this amazing film by a German filmmaker named Monika Treut, T R E U T, called The Virgin Machine. and it's a film about a German lesbian coming to San Francisco to look for her mother who abandoned the family and came to San Francisco to be a lesbian. And so it's a lesbian looking for her mother in San Francisco. And it just – it's a really low-budget film. It's like it goes around to like all of the places that were like the lesbian spots oh, in wow. San Francisco in the 80s. And there's a great scene at, at Amelia's. So anyway, if you can find the film – What was it called it, again? It's called The Virgin Machine. The Virgin Machine. Um, let's bring in one more call. Kristen in Union City. Welcome. Hi. Um, I am a suit-head white, white woman who grew up in fundamentalist Florida. Mm. And oh I, grew, I grew up in a very, very fundamentalist family. And I had a trans cousin in the 70s. Um, it, was, it is a very complicated history. It, there was a lot of shame. That was, I was very young. I didn't understand. I didn't understand gender-affirming surgery. I didn't understand any of that going on. And she was quite a bit older than me. Um, She married a lovely man who uh, helped her achieve the surgery that made her feel more like herself. And as she went through, there was still this shame. There was shame in the family. And when I got to college, still going to a fundamentalist Christian school, I remember reaching out to her and saying, look, I, I don't know what happened in the past. 
I just know that you're you and I'm me and there's no reason for this. And I don't need ally cookies for that. But listening to you talk on this radio show, she has now passed. And I'm listening to this thinking about how far we've come how proud she would be and it's just i'm finding it very very touching yeah. and thank you so much for this show thank you well, you're very welcome yeah yeah thank I'm, you really thank you um you know and you do get ally cookies whether you like them or not <laughs> <all right. laughs> yes. and, and they're better than girl scout cookies they last longer <laughs> girl scouts are good allies that's true that's right it's a great it's organization do you think well i'll put it this way I think the work you two are doing is making the world a better place. You're oh. creating paths for families, parents like myself, kids like my kids. And I just honestly can't thank you enough. And I do I, sometimes when I think about people who are stuck in situations like that r- were raised in ways like that and just having their light dimmed in all these different ways, it, it, it honestly breaks my heart. I, can't, I, I almost can't even think about it and i just i don't know where we would be if you hadn't you know created these pathways and i just so much love and appreciation for the work that you've done thank you so oh, much thank well, you thank you thanks for having us on and you know i would just have to say if if i hadn't done some of this work somebody else would have done it you know just like i just happened to be on deck when a possibility emerged doing this work and if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else. You're so. pretty good at it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and if it wasn't for me, it would be some other crazy collector. <laughs> yeah. We have been talking about trans history and some significant barrier figures from that history with Susan Stryker, incoming faculty member at the University of Southern California, and Ms. Bob Davis, collector and founder of the Luis Lawrence Transgender Archive in Vallejo. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Alexis. The 9 O'Clock Hour Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Juan, Dan Zoll, Juan Carlos Lara, Rachel Vasquez, and Jennifer Ng. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer, a hero always, but especially this week if you heard the live remote yesterday. Also, special special shout-out to Paul. Our interns are Lulu Ralda, Jericho Reininger. Our VP of News is Ethan Tobin Lindy, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.